Amen. Good morning, everybody. You have your Bible with you this morning? Galatians chapter 2 is where you need to go. We're going to get right to work today. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack right in front of you so we can study God's Word together. Last week in our study of Galatians, we continued on in this autobiographical portion of the letter. I want you to remember as Paul recalls these things that have happened in his life, He is not defending his own honor. He's not defending his own reputation. He is defending the one true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Specifically last week, we looked at Paul's account of his second visit to Jerusalem some 14 years after his conversion experience. And it was clear from the text last week that there is only one gospel. We keep seeing this over and over in Galatians. There is only one true gospel. Not many roads that lead to the same destination. There is one road. Not many doors that all open to the same place. There is one door. The good news is that one door is an open door. Open for all who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was also clear from the text That this one gospel unites all those who believe it and all those who preach it. For instance, Peter and Paul are together because of the gospel. Additionally, there are people from Jewish backgrounds and people from Gentile backgrounds, and they are together because of the gospel. But we talked about that even as this gospel brings us who believe it together, it separates us or distinguishes us from those who deny it. from those who reject it, from everyone else, essentially. We talked about that last week as well. And finally, it was clear from the text that this one gospel is being, continues to be preached in many ways and in many places. And we should rejoice over this, that the gospel is being proclaimed in a number of languages today, that the gospel is being proclaimed in a number of styles today. We should rejoice over this, and we should join in participating in this, announcing the gospel in a number, the one true gospel, in a number of different ways, in a number of different places. And I told you from my pastoral heart last week that we must guard our attitude toward those who are proclaiming this one true gospel in ways or flavors that are different from ours. Like we, we, we see this in Peter and Paul, that they recognize that they've been called to different things, but yet they're not at odds with each other, that not one is trying to be superior to the other, but they're rejoicing in the fact that, that Paul is taking the gospel to the Gentiles and Peter is taking the gospel to those children of Abraham, and they rejoice over this, and we've got to do that as well. And that last point that we talked about last week makes good transition to the text for this week. Last week we saw how Peter had a specific calling to the Jews. And Paul had a specific calling to the Gentiles. They respected one another and they appreciated the work that the other was doing rather than this superiority or this competition. This week, what you're going to see is that although each of these guys had a specific calling, that didn't mean that their calling was exclusive. They had a specific calling, but that doesn't mean that their calling was exclusive. In other words, you will occasionally see Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, preaching to the Jews. Likewise, you will also see Peter, the apostle to the Jews, preaching to the Gentiles. And I want us to recognize that it works that way with us as well, that we all have a specific calling and a specific set of gifts that should be used in a specific ministry. But that doesn't mean our specificity is exclusive. 
In other words, sometimes for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the health of the church, we have to step outside of what may be our specific calling and do something that might not be in our wheelhouse occasionally. And that's okay. Your specific calling doesn't imply exclusive calling. So be willing to do things that might not be in your wheelhouse all the time. The text this week is an interesting scene, and there is much for us to learn. John Stott describes this particular text in this way. It'll be on the screen. He says, This is without doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Here, two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face-to-face in complete and open conflict. That's what we're going to see in the text today. David Platt describes it this way. He says, this is one of the most dramatic and tense episodes in all of the New Testament. Interesting, right? Paul the Apostle publicly confronts Peter the Apostle. You're going to see Paul get up in Peter's face today. And there is so much for us to learn from this exchange. So let's read it together in God's Word. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. That's our text for the day. This is what God's word says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that you will help us understand it rightly. That you will speak the truth of your word, not just to our ears and not just to our brains, but to our hearts. And that we won't just have understanding of the text, but that we'll be transformed by the text. That you will change our lives with your word. That's our desire today. It's not to fill up our brains with information, but to have our lives transformed by your word, by your grace, ultimately for your glory. So we pray that you bring this to pass. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to look first at verse 11. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now I want to, I want to point out right off the bat, there are a lot of buts in Galatians. Like it seems like nearly every sentence, every clause starts, starts with this little word, but. And we are on Sunday nights looking at that little word throughout the scriptures to watch this big transition that happens oftentimes. So I want to invite you back tonight as we study God's word and we look at those transitions that happen because of Jesus. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, stop there and say, this Cephas here, that's Peter. Lots of guys in the Bible had more than one name. And that can get kind of confusing, especially to us who live in this one language and one culture kind of place. The fact that these guys had multiple names and they are referred to in multiple different ways is sometimes hard for us to understand. And I want you to hang on to that right now because Paul here is going to refer to him as Cephas, but we're going to go to Acts in a little while and see him referred to by yet a third name. So this is Paul, this is the, I mean, this is Peter, this is the apostle that is coming to Antioch. He comes to Antioch, 
Paul had visited Peter on his home turf in Jerusalem. We've talked about those two trips from Galatians. And now Peter is essentially going to Paul's home turf in Antioch. The church at Antioch was the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journey. In obedience, they did this in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And Antioch became kind of home base for Paul in his missionary work throughout the world. When Peter came to Antioch to visit Paul, Paul confronted him. It says in the text, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. He got all in his face. There is confrontation here. Let's notice that right off the bat. And this confrontation was not indirect. It wasn't as if when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him by talking to his neighbor and talking to his friend or approaching his secretary or posting it on Facebook. Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, I confronted him face to face. There is confrontation. There is direct confrontation. And we need to notice that the issue is serious. It's not some secondary thing that causes Paul to confront Peter like this. You'll see later in the text that it is the very truth of the gospel that is at stake. Not some secondary issue of preference, but the truth of the gospel. This is a big deal. Now that sets the stage for this scene, and the rest of the text is going to give us the details of the scene. Look at verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, that is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. Now let's deal first with this idea of Peter having a habit of eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. And I need to inform you right off the bat that that's kind of a big deal in itself. That Peter, who is from a very Jewish background, who grew up under the law with all of its dietary restrictions and cleanliness, that he would eat with Gentiles, that's a big deal. Jews and Gentiles don't customarily share the table with one another. Because Jews in particular saw Gentiles as unclean individuals who ate unclean foods in an unclean manner. And we know that Jewish people were very much concerned about cleanliness, ritual purity, so that their worship wouldn't be impeded. So the fact that Peter is dining with these Gentiles is revolutionary and he learned it from his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys talked about this a little bit this weekend, right? About how Jesus is constantly going to people that you wouldn't expect him to go to. Or that at least his culture wouldn't expect him to go to. And he is often accused of dining and drinking with sinners. Dining and drinking with those who are unclean. Jesus does this. This man receives sinners and eats with them, the Pharisees would say. So this is the shocking part. That Peter had a habit at one point of eating with the Gentiles. Not that he quit eating with them, but that he habit, had a habit of eating with them in the first place. And all of this comes about because Peter had an experience earlier in his life where God showed him that because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the barrier that used to keep Jews and Gentiles separated at the table had been broken down. You can read about this in Acts chapter 10. In fact, if you want to turn there, I would encourage you to do that. I'm not going to read it to you today. I'm not going to read this story to you today as much as I'm going to tell it to you today. I'm going to tell you the story in Acts chapter 10 of Peter and Cornelius and this vision that he has. If you want to follow along so that I don't make any major mistakes, you can do that. All right? So the story from God's word in Acts chapter 10 goes like this. There was a man named Cornelius, and this man was a Gentile. He was not a descendant of Abraham. He was an outsider, so to speak, but he knew something about the God of Israel. 
And he was interested in the God of Israel. And he worshipped the God of Israel on some level, but he was still a Gentile and not a Jew. And one day, he had a vision. Cornelius, the Gentile, had a vision where an angel of the Lord told him to send a servant to a town called Joppa to search for a man named Simon. This guy's got a lot of names. That's Peter, right? Paul's calling him Cephas. Sometimes he's called Peter. Here in this story, God tells Cornelius to send for the man named Simon. That's Peter. He says, send a, mission, or send a servant over to Joppa to find a man named Simon who happens to be staying at the house of a man named Simon, <laughs> This is really confusing when it comes to names, right? Brad's great with names, and I'm terrible with them. So send a guy to Simon the Tanner's house to find Simon Peter and ask him to come to you, all right? So he, so he has this vision, he has this dream, and uh, he, sends, he sends a servant along with two others to travel to Joppa to look for Peter. Now, while this is happening, while this is happening, uh, Peter is up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, and he's hungry. And he falls into a trance. Before his host can bring some food up to him, he falls into a trance. And I like this part of the story because I've experienced this part of the story. From this perspective right here, you're hungry, and before you can get something to eat, you fall into a trance. It's kind of happening in this general vicinity right now. Peter is on the roof hungry, and he falls into a trance. And in this trance, he has a vision. And in that vision, a great sheet is let down from heaven. And on that sheet are all kinds of animals, clean animals and unclean animals. Like there are cows and chickens, the kind of things that Peter was used to eating, but there were pigs also, perhaps, and, and, and maybe a lobster or a catfish or something like that, uh, things that he wasn't necessarily used to eating. And the sheet was let down from heaven, and God spoke to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Get up, Peter, kill and eat, in reference to all kinds of animals. And Peter's response to the voice of God was, No way! No way! I've never eaten anything unclean. Or unholy. And God said to Peter, Do not continue to call unclean what I have called holy. And this happened three times this exchange between Peter and God, where God said, Get up, kill, and eat. And Peter said, No way. And God said, Don't call it unclean when I've called it clean. This happened three times. Now, Peter then woke from the trance and he began to ponder this. He thought, This is really weird what I have seen. And he began to wonder what this meant. And about that time, the servants from Cornelius the Gentile's house had arrived in Joppa. And they began to inquire about where Simon the Tanner's house was so that they could find Peter. And at the same time as they were wandering around looking for this house, God spoke to Peter yet again. He said, three guys are going to knock on the door in just a minute. And when they knock on the door, you need to go with them. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Three guys knocked on the door, and Peter went with them. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit in Acts chapter 10. Peter gets to Cornelius' house, and when he gets to Cornelius' house, he realizes that this guy has invited all of his family and all of his friends because he knows that God is sending a messenger to his house. And so Peter walks in to this house filled to the brim with Gentiles. And when he shows up, all of these Gentiles bow down before Peter. 
and they like start to worship him. And of course, Peter says, no, 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 don't, don't do that because I am just a man just like you. And in the course of the conversation at the beginning at Cornelius' house, Peter says something very interesting. It's on the board in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 28. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Like he got, the, he got the picture, right? Three times God showed him this, and he understood it. And so as he stands with these Gentiles, he says, I know that this is not normal, but God has showed me that what he has called clean, I am not to call unclean. And so he's willing to engage with them. Well, we'll fast forward a little bit more, and Peter preaches the gospel to this house full of Gentiles. He tells them about Jesus and how he died for sins and rose again. He taught them about salvation that comes by grace as a gift through faith in Jesus alone. And sure enough, these people believe. This house full of Gentiles believe the gospel that this Jewish Christian is preaching to them. And look what happens in chapter 10, verse 44. I want you to see this from God's word. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, that's the gospel words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that's believers in Jesus from a Jewish background, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked for him to stay on for a few days. You know what you don't see there? What, what you do see there is the gospel being preached to Gentiles. Gentiles believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. Being filled up with the Holy Spirit and being baptized. All as a Jewish man proclaims this message to them. But you know what you don't see in that scene? Circumcision. Peter never says to these people who have become followers of Jesus... You need to get circumcised because you're not circumcised. In order to be circumcised, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. He never says anything like that. He just rejoices over the fact that God has saved them in the same way he saved him. And it's a great celebration. And so when, when Peter then leaves that place and goes back to a gathering of Jewish folks, they're not crazy about this. They're not crazy necessarily about what has happened here. But Peter learned the lesson. Peter learned the lesson that, that we must not call unclean what God has declared to be clean. And so from that day forward, it seems like Peter is willing to sit down and eat with Gentiles. He's willing to sit down and eat with Gentiles because the gospel has broken down the barrier that would keep them separated. Because the picture is not a Jew sitting down with a Gentile. It's two Christian brothers sitting down for fellowship. That's what's going on as Peter dines with these folks in Antioch. So, it's an interesting scene that Peter came to have a habit of eating with Gentiles. Now, let's talk a little bit from that verse about these guys who are from James. The certain men from James who came. These are probably the same guys that this letter is, is written because of. These are probably Judaizers. They probably didn't really have James's authority to come and cause this trouble, but they came nonetheless. 
They were very much frowning upon the idea of a Jewish man eating with a Gentile man. But once again, we understand that's not what's happening. It's not a Jewish man and a Gentile man eating. It's two Christian brothers sharing a meal together. So these folks from James show up, and look what it says in the next phrase. But when they came, when these men from James came, he, that is Peter, began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Now this is a sad scene indeed. Peter gives in to peer pressure here. This word withdrawal has the, has the connotation of a military strategic disengagement. It, it, it's like an army who pulls back. And that's exactly what Peter, the Jewish Christian, does with the Gentile Christians. He pulls back. But notice also it says he began to hold himself aloof. And I think that teaches us that Peter didn't have a conversation with those Gentile believers. He didn't go to them and say, listen, this is going to cause, us eating together is going to cause a lot of trouble with these guys. And so as long as they're here, I'm going to pull back. It doesn't seem like he does that at all. It seems like he just quietly, without a conversation, stops answering their invitations to their house, stops inviting them to his house, and creates more and more distance between himself and the Gentile believers. And this is a big problem in the eyes of the Apostle Paul. But the problem gets worse. Look at verse 13. It says, The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. First, let's talk about that word hypocrisy. That word means to act like something you're not. Peter was free. He was free because of the gospel. He was free to eat with the Gentiles because of the gospel. But he was acting like he was still bound. He was not acting like he was free. And it's ugly. This hypocrisy is ugly. He is being two-faced. And what's even more scary is that his hypocrisy was contagious. Notice that as the leader, Peter, starts to pull away from those Gentiles, the other Christians from Jewish backgrounds followed him in pulling away from the Gentiles and were creating this big divide between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And then it seems to especially break Paul's heart, at least, at least that's the way I read it, that even Barnabas got caught up in this. Like even his partner, his pal, Barnabas, got caught up in this hypocrisy and began to separate himself from the Gentile believers. And here's the action in verse 14. It says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? This verse, verse 14, is highly significant for a proper understanding of this passage. We need to see that the issue that has Paul so riled up is not a relationship issue. It's not a social issue. He is not primarily in Peter's face over a meal. He says the truth of the gospel is at stake here. It's because they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel that I got in Peter's face. He makes clear that it is about the truth of the gospel. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Peter seems to be compromising that truth by emphasizing or maybe even implicitly compelling or forcing people to follow the law in order to eat with him. He basically saying, if you want fellowship with me, follow the law. Eat the clean things, eat them in a clean way, follow the law, and then we can have fellowship. And it seems like in doing that, he is also implying, you got to do that to be saved. 
Seems like he is siding with the Judaizers who don't say it's salvation in Jesus alone, but they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but also keep the law and you'll be saved. It seems like Peter is lining up with them and throwing the gospel out the window. Remember in chapter 1, Paul says, this is a perversion of the gospel, a reversal of the gospel, and it's no gospel at all. And anyone who preaches a gospel like that should be condemned for all of eternity. And Paul says, Peter, you're buying into it. And you're leading people into it. And it's got to stop because it is the truth of the gospel that is at stake. And so Paul gets in Peter's face. Paul will not stand for this kind of perversion of the gospel. Notice also that Paul confronted Peter publicly. Because the issue was a public issue with a public effect. Now, I want to say this. Most of the time, when we need to confront a brother in Christ, it will need to be in private at first. That's the normal pattern. We don't, we don't usually bring someone up on the platform and get in their face, right? Usually we have a private conversation with them, and if need be, it escalates from there. But this was not a normal situation. This is very early in the life of the church, and the very gospel is at stake here. And so Paul goes straight for him, right in public, and he confronts him. I want you to see something really interesting. In verse 14, he mentions the truth of the gospel. Like if you, in your Bible, if you're a highlighter, highlight that in verse 14, the truth of the gospel. And then at the end of verse 14, he says, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? So it's the truth of the gospel that's at stake because Peter seems to be compelling people to live like Jews, compelling folks to keep the law. And what I want you to see is that's exactly the same issues as the text we looked at last week. Look at verse um, 5, chapter 2, verse 5, as Paul talks about these Judaizers who were causing trouble in Jerusalem. He says, we did not yield in subjection to them for even one hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So he doesn't, he doesn't circumcise his friend Titus so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. And notice in verse um, 3, he says, not even Titus who was with me, though he was Greek, was compelled to be circumcised or forced to be circumcised. It's the same idea. The truth of the gospel is compromised when people are compelled or forced to follow the law in order to be saved. You don't get saved by following the law. You get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you follow a law as a result of that. Not to get there, but as the fruit of it. And so that's the same, the same issue that is going on between Peter and Paul in verses 11 to 14 is the same issue that was happening in Jerusalem in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I think there are three big applications for us to walk away from this text with today. Number one, I want to say this all very carefully. Even the best leaders can make some serious mistakes sometimes. And when they do, they need to be confronted. But this should be done very carefully. Several big ideas there. Even the best leaders. We're talking about Peter here. We're talking about this guy that was with Jesus from the very beginning. The rock, so to speak. Even the best leaders can make some serious mistakes sometimes. And when they do, they need to be confronted. We can't just say, I can't say anything to him, it's Peter. How can I possibly say something to him? Even though the truth of the gospel is at stake, he's Peter. By the way, there's a little bit of lesson in here for all of you uh, Protestants about papal infallibility. We'll talk about that another day, though. 
and it'll be fun. When they make big mistakes like this, they need to be confronted. And when that confrontation happens, it needs to happen very carefully. I want to steer you to another text that speaks of this. Paul, equipping young Timothy for life in the church and ministry in the church, instructs him about how to confront a leader. He uses the word elder here, which is very much the same idea as pastor or overseer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 22 with me. He says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That part has nothing to do with the lesson for the day, but it's always good to hear that, right? It's always good for the preacher to be able to say that. The next part is the important part for us today. He says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Verse 21, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So I want, I want to present this to you with a little bit of balance. To recognize, one, even the best leaders can make some serious mistakes sometimes. Two, when they do, they need to be confronted. And I'm inviting this for myself as a leader. When I make a serious mistake, I need to be confronted. Three, when that confrontation happens, it needs to happen very carefully. Like, don't go just making every accusation against an elder. And don't go laying your hands on him for something that is not valid. And I would even add this. It needs to be about matters where the truth of the gospel is at stake. Not matters of, I didn't like that, or I didn't prefer that, or I didn't, wasn't feeling that. But when the truth of the gospel is at stake, then these kind of confrontations need to happen. And remember that in the midst of all this, it was Peter's fear of the Judaizers that led him to this mistake. He did this for fear of the circumcision party. So I would ask you to pray for us. Pray for guys like me, that our highest allegiance would be to God and not to man. Remember that from chapter 1? Paul says, am I, am I now trying to please God or please man? If I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. And so I want you to pray for us who are leading in this church, that our highest allegiance would be to God and not man. And when you pray that, it includes you too. Like, let, me, let me rant a little bit as a, as a pastor. I have had experiences where people who are the first to say, Preacher, you can't be at everything. Nobody expects you to make it to everything. But you better make it to my thing. Right? Nobody expects you to be able to do it all. And then when you can't do their thing, you're mad about it. So if you're going to pray... Listen, and I want you to. I think you should. It's biblical. If you're going to pray for us that our highest allegiance would be to God and not to man, when that comes to bear for you and you're second and he's first in some matter, you got to say, okay, that's what I prayed for. Thank you, God, for answering my prayer. My pastor cares more about the Lord and following him than he does about me. This is a big, this is a big deal. <laughs> if you're willing to pray that way, I believe that will happen. And when it does, you need to be ready to accept it. Because that's best for you. What's best for all, you ultimately is that we would follow the Lord 
and care more about pleasing him than we do about pleasing God. Even the best leaders can make serious mistakes sometimes, and when they do, they need to be confronted, but that confrontation should be done very carefully. That's number one, which was like six things. Number two, confrontation. And here, I'm talking about general confrontation, not just the confrontation of authorities, but general confrontation between brothers and sisters. Confrontation, though painful, is often necessary. And it is helpful for the growth of an individual and to safeguard the truth of the gospel. Confrontation, though painful, is necessary and helpful for the growth of the individual and for the safeguard of the truth of the gospel. And it is ultimately an act of love. Confrontation is ultimately an act of love when it's done right. I want to show you a bunch of passages from wisdom literature. Wisdom literature in the scriptures where this kind of confrontation is seen as a prize, as a gift, as a jewel. Look at Psalm 141 verse 5 on the screen. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. You catch that? He says, let the righteous one smite me, hit me, and in kindness reprove me. It's like oil on my head. It's like a gift and a blessing. Proverbs 25, 12 says, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Paul is reproving Peter here. Solomon says it's like an earring, like a golden earring. It's a gift when someone wise would reprove you, reprove you don't reject it. Proverbs 19, 25 says, Strike a scoffer, and thy naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. A guy that doesn't care anything about truth, you rebuke him, and he doesn't care anything about it. But a wise man, when he's reproved, listens, listens, and is changed. Ecclesiastes 7.5 says, It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. That's a good word. And my favorite one is Proverbs 27.5 and 6 that says, Better is an open rebuke than a love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Confrontation, though it is painful, is often necessary both for the growth of the individual being confronted and the one who's confronting, and for the safeguarding of the truth of the gospel. And when done rightly, it is an act of love. We don't have much of a category for that in the modern church, and we need to recapture it. And then the last application is the biggest and best. This text shows us that the gospel breaks down barriers. The gospel breaks down barriers. Primarily, foremostly, it breaks down the barrier between a holy God and sinful man. How in the world could a holy, holy, holy God, who is perfectly righteous and just, how in the world could a God like that have a relationship with a guy like me? Sinful and dirty, depraved. How could a holy God have a relationship with a sinful man? Only because of Jesus. Only because Jesus came took our sin, satisfied the wrath of God against our sin, died for us, the death that we deserve. It was my death that he died. My death that he died. He died for us. And he rose again in victory over sin and death and hell so that we could be reconciled to God. 
so that where there was once enmity, conflict, and separation, there could be acceptance, love, adoption, reconciliation. How could a holy God and sinful man have a relationship only through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? The gospel breaks down barriers vertically, and the gospel breaks down barriers horizontally. How could a guy like me have a relationship with a guy like you? How could a guy with my background and my story have a relationship with you and your background and your story? We don't have anything in common, perhaps, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have the Lord Jesus Christ in common, we have all that we need in common. That's why we love to see brothers and sisters from other countries gather together for worship so that we sing with one mind and one voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And when we do that, we are mimicking what is going on in heaven even now. That men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered around the throne, singing with one voice, one song, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That binds us together. Got, they don't even have language in common, it seems. But they've got the Lord Jesus Christ in common. And when we have him in common, we are brought together because of the gospel. And we are brought together for the sake of the gospel. Let's pursue that. That's what this weekend has been about for you guys, right? Let's pursue that. Let's pursue the way the gospel breaks down barriers between those who believe in him. There aren't rich Christians and poor Christians. There aren't free Christians and uh, slave Christians. There aren't uh, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. There are Christians. Christians. One family with one Lord, one gospel. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel to break down barriers between us and you. Thank you that because Jesus died and rose again, we can, we can have a relationship with you. And I pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room who don't have a relationship with you, that today you would reach down and rescue them that you would show them their sinfulness, that you would teach them about your righteousness, that you would show them the reality of the great divide, and that in their brokenness, you would show them the glory of the cross, that Jesus came to reconcile sinners to the Father. And I pray that as their eyes are open to that glorious truth of substitutionary atonement, that they would respond with repentance and faith, that you would give them faith to trust in Jesus and his work, And that you would give them repentance to turn away from sins and walk toward you in faithfulness. God, I pray that you'll do this not just for their sake, that they would be redeemed. But for your name's sake, as you receive from them the worship that you are due. And I pray for your church, that you will help us to seek, to see barriers broken down because of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. That men and women and boys and girls from radically different backgrounds would gather together because of Jesus. And that we as a church would seek our unity in Christ alone. That we wouldn't build it on secondary things that come and go, but that we would build our unity on the gospel that remains, the one and only gospel that remains forever and ever. That we would find our togetherness in the gospel. That this would happen For your glory, in Christ's name we pray.